Hello and welcome. This is Being Human. I'm Jay Frost, and in this episode, my co-host Peter Linus and I are chatting with author, pastor, and director of the Evangelical Alliance's One People Commission, Reverend Dr. Israel Olafinjana. In this episode, we hear how Israel's upbringing in Nigeria and his experience in coming to the UK to lead a Baptist church in London shapes and forms his understanding of intercultural mission, of unity, and of power. We hear about his passion around climate justice, of his concern for mental health care for people of colour, and his commitment to see the church in the UK united across ethnic and cultural divides. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. Hello and welcome. It is an absolute pleasure to welcome Reverend Dr. Israel Olafinjana to join us today, friend and colleague, Director of the One People Commission at the Evangelical Alliance. It is fabulous to have you with us. How are you? Thank you very much, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here and I'm looking forward to the conversation. So you are currently director at the uh, One People Commission, OPC for short, former Baptist pastor, author, academic, theologian. Let's start a little bit with the OPC, first of all, and then we'll push in and find out a little bit more about you. So for those who may not be familiar with the OPC, what is it? What's its vision? What does it try and do? Give us a bit of an introduction for us. The One People Commission, it's a network initiative of the Evangelical Alliance. And I think it's just important to start with that introduction that it's an initiative within the EA. And I think its remit, its vision is modeling this idea that God's people are one. So the strap line of our vision is celebrating unity whilst promoting diversity. I suppose the idea of one people, going back to that idea of one humanity, which we see in the Genesis text and, you know, in the creation story, that we are one people. And so one people commission is trying to model that, that we are one humanity, we are one God's people. But then following on from there, one people of God speaking with one voice into various issues, whether advocacy issues, mission, other things that are related to church and society, but also specifically in terms of mission, uh, Monsieur Day, God's commission, uh, speaking into the Great Commission in terms of making disciples of our nation. So that is uh, the One People Commission Network. Uh, and I think coming in, what I've been trying to do is to continue to promote unity uh, and then the idea of integration. We help local churches in terms of being multi-ethnic, multicultural, but also the idea around justice, so unity, integration, to see how we can continue to unpack some of that in today's context. Amazing. And so that's the vision of the OPC, but it refl- and that's the story, but that reflects very much your own story as well. Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you come from, what drives you, what passions do you have? Thanks. So I'm from Nigeria, and I think since becoming a Christian, I've always have a passion for, you know, cross-cultural mission. I remember growing up, studying university, studying religious studies, and being part of the Christian Union at university. I was very much interested in this idea of interdenominational Christians, you know, coming together and fellowshipping. And I think that became a seedbed of working cross-culturally. 
so I've always been passionate about that. And then when the opportunity came to uh, come to the UK as you know what today people are called reverse missionary. So I was sent by my Pentecostal church in Nigeria. And the idea was to plant uh, a church here in the UK. And I kind of reflect if I plant this church, it will be a Nigerian church. Of course, there's nothing wrong with having a Nigerian church. Some people are called to do that for certain reasons, which can be explained some other time. But I think I, I felt God calling me to the UK was uh, to come and model something different, something about his intercultural kingdom. So I abandoned the church plant and decided to look for an English church in Lewisham in London and found a Baptist church where it became my home and became my place where I intend to understand the dynamics of a multicultural church. And I'm so pleased for that experience because it really shaped some of my thoughts today in terms of what it means to relate with different people in a local space. And also my marriage is intercultural. So that, that has always been my journey of working in intercultural, cross-cultural spaces, either through ministry or even family in that sense. So I've always been passionate about that. So it, it's no surprise that something like the One People Commission appeals to me now currently leading that because that speaks into that as well. So it's great, Israel, to hear uh, some of your journey, and we're going to come back to that in a moment. But I'd love to ask you about then what it means to you. What's the greatest gift for you being Nigerian? Wow, being Nigerian. I suppose, let, let me start with a little bit of deconstructing that question, if I may. Uh, when we talk about Nigeria today, I, I think, first of all, even the term and itself, when we say, it's a colonial project in the sense that Nigeria was something put together by the British government. And so I see myself more as a Yoruba person. That is one of the tribes in Nigeria, one of the many tribes in Nigeria, which is southwestern Nigeria. And I think, I suppose, one of the things that is unique and the perspective being a Nigerian or a Yoruba in this instance is that because the culture was not directly influenced by the Enlightenment worldview. Of course, there, there were some benefits like tropical medicine uh, and some other aspects, but it wasn't largely affected. So what that simply means is the way I think is not in kind of Enlightenment paradigms. It's not in terms of categorizing. My thinking is very different. It's holistic because of my worldview, because of being Yoruba, because of being Nigerian. Uh, and so that's one of the gifts of being Nigerian. But a second aspect of that is language. There is something about language, isn't it? Because I think the ability to be able to speak my own language and to be able to think as a Yoruba person to speak Yoruba is quite powerful because it simply means that there are some things I can think in Yoruba that don't necessarily translate into English. That is problematic in some sense <laughs> because you're trying to find words and concepts to pass across to your audience. But also there is a way it affirms your cultural root, your idea of being human and rooted to a particular geopolitical space. So, so I think those two aspects, just to, for the sake of time, you know, the idea of being a Yoruba person, but then also the idea of language. Because the next question we were going to ask you is around what it is to be British, the gift of being British. And I asked that as somebody in Northern Ireland, we're celebrating, marking, commemorating or commiserating, depending on where you come from in my context, 100 years as a country. 
uh, and I was on social media over the weekend a little bit about saying I'm Northern Irish, I'm Irish and I'm British holding all of those things. But that, as you know, too, is, is very controversial in our context and due to our historical past. But I wonder what you would say uh, is, the, is the gift of also being British and identifying yourself in that way or how you would do that and identifying the gift around that? This is a good question because actually it reflects my PhD thesis, exploring what it means to be African and also what it means to be British and that, how that enhances or hinder mission in that sense. So I love that question. I think in terms of being British, I think one of the gifts of that is, you know, having come and lived here for more than 15 years now, is picking up the ability to be able to rationalize in a particular way. And I think oftentimes we critique rationalism, but I think there is also some gifts to that, to be able to think in a particular way and to be able to be pragmatic in some sense. And also the idea of charity, you know, I, I think when I think about the British culture, of course, it's not homogeneous. It's never homogeneous. But one of the things is that idea of being charity, that idea of giving ourselves to other people, of loving. Again, that's something that, that I've picked up that has really been a blessing. And so when I look at myself today, I am Nigerian, but I'm also British. And, you know, I suppose people will talk about being Black British. And I think both is very important. Even when we think about Paul, Paul was a Jew. Uh, you know, he had a Roman citizenship. He was also a uh, Greek. So he had this trapezoid identity, uh, which constitutes many parts of his theology. And I think the richer, the better for having those kind of dual or trapezoid understanding of identity. So uh, better for it for being Nigerian and also for being British. And I think that's true of all of us. One of the things we love in the project is exploring this question of identity because we all bring so many strands in our stories in. And one of the things you're working on, I know in Evangelical Alliance um, is around climate change, climate justice, creation care. And I know you've been, it's a project that kind of goes across the organization, but you've been driving that. So I'd love to understand a little bit, because I've heard you talk about this, how your own experiences as a child have informed some of your thinking. So could you say a little bit more about that? So I grew up in a part of Nigeria where flooding was a constant occurrence. And to the extent that I actually thought flooding was just normal, you know, got, you know, I remember walking to secondary school, walking there and back, you know, it will be heavily pouring and we will be playing in it. Businesses being devastated, bridges being torn apart and various things happening. We just thought it was normal. It was not until later, as I started studying sort of African theology, that I began to put one and two together to reflect that actually, the flooding was as a result of the impact of the climate change, global warming that we now talk a lot about. And so that was sort of my entry point uh, into this conversation. But what was interesting was that my Pentecostal church back then, whilst there was all this flooding, we, we were so preoccupied about making heaven. That, that was just what we, you know, that's just the theology. And if it wasn't that, it was also the idea of prospering. Uh, because of the economic situation and poverty. But also alongside that, I do remember myself and my sister, despite the fact that we didn't know what we were doing was being green. We planted 
tomatoes. We grow our own food in the front of our house. We are the poultry, you know, where we collect eggs, sell eggs, make food from that and all that kind of stuff. So I was working, my first job was actually working on my mom's poultry and they didn't realize that all these habits were ideas of being green. And so they sowed those seeds. Uh, so that's been my entry point, but also studying it now as well as working with organizations around relief and development has also helped to continue that journey, which started back in Nigeria. So I, I find it interesting, especially when we talk about climate justice, creating care, environmentalism, lots of colors start popping up. So talk us a little bit through, so in British culture, we, we do have quite a strong historical environmentalism and the green agenda. But where does the brown agenda fit in? What's What are some of the conversations, concerns, criticisms, moments for engagement around all these different agendas that are popping up? So I think the, the green agenda speaks about conservation and preservation of yeah, you know, the green spaces that, you know, that is part of our world, which are so important or desert spaces or, or you know, wildlife conservation in terms of some animals going extinct. So it, it, it tends to focus uh, on preservation and conservation. Now, the brown agenda, on the other hand, is something that majority world thinkers and theologians have been wrestling with around this idea of poverty, particularly looking at e exploitative economies and the ecological degradation on people of color, people of color in the sense of African Caribbeans, Africans, Asians, and Latin Americans, how the ecological crisis impacts them and there's poverty, there's migration, the connection or the intersection of these narratives are they weave together. And so the Brown Agenda shifts the focus from green spaces or conservation of animals or extinct animals or about to be extinct to people and to begin to look at you know poverty and what we can do and also how some of that is racialized and, and speaking into that space and so some of the work I've been doing with some other activist uh, black majority church leaders has been looking at that and how we can speak into that space but I'm a big advocate of what I'm calling the olive agenda you know which is looking at the green agenda but as well as the brown agenda because I think we need, again, going back to that holistic approach, holistic thinking and worldview. And I suppose this is where the lens of integral mission is very, very positive. You have people like Rene Padilla speaking about the need for ecological action as well as political action. So I think we need both, but it's just so that there's been different emphasis in different parts of the world because of some of the issues and solutions we're trying to prefer. And in some of the spaces we're talking about, obviously, language is really critical. And we'll probably return to that as we speak uh, more about race uh, and ethnicity. But when it comes to creation care, climate justice, the environment, how important is language in, in framing those engagements for you, Israel? Because I know it's one of the things we've talked about here on the podcast before is, is the importance of creation care, the importance of stewarding what we've been given. But I know even that language can provoke, but others think climate justice. If I'm, each term seems provocative to different groups. So how, how, how have you navigated that and how important is that? Language is very important. And I think sometimes when people use the word climate emergency, you know, first people want to understand what does that even mean in the first place. And I suppose within the church, because we are looking at it from 
the theology of creation. So hence creation care makes a lot of sense to speak into that, to look at, yes, because God created this world. Human beings didn't create this world. Depend, you know, No matter how much narratives people might want to spin around that, God created this world, at least from a Judeo-Christian worldview. And so because of that, creation care speaks into that. But the language of Climate justice, again, is a further step along the lines of developing a brown theology or the brown agenda. So I'm using the word climate justice in the sense of a shared responsibility and the need for us to speak up and to take action so that we can speak into the dignity and the respect and the rights of people who are disproportionately impacted by the ecological crisis. So again, it's a further step in terms of the brown theology looking at, okay, there is the need for climate justice because, you know, there are people who are impacted across the world in that sense that we need to speak advocacy to speak that language. So I know language is problematic, but I think the word climate justice comes in because it develops again for the ideas around the Brown theology. And actually, just pressing into that, because I've heard you talk before about different biblical themes that you've pulled on to help the church understand both what's going on and potential approaches to engage with it. And the two threads that you've pulled on are threads that we've pulled on before, and I find them really fascinating, especially in this context, and that's Jubilee and that's Sabbath. This idea of rest, of land, of the relationship between people and their spaces, what does it mean to honour and steward those spaces well? And what do those Old Testament themes of Jubilee and rest and Sabbath give us? Tell us a little bit more about that. And then maybe some ideas about how people can take those first steps of engagement and discipleship into those spaces. So I think when we look at scripture, and I think this is where that theology of creation really comes out, you know, thinking about the, you know, the Sabbath principle. The Sabbath principle in scripture has a, what I would call a, a triplicate application. It has a threefold to it. And one is that God himself rested, you know, God himself rested, modeling something to us about well-being. And I think you cannot disconnect well-being away from the climate conversation we're having. I think they're very linked together. But then the second aspect is that God actually gave us a command to, you know, walk six days, rest on the Sabbath. And that was something that God gave to humanity. And so that's the application for us that as human beings, we need to take rest very seriously. We need to take our well-being seriously. Again, if there's anything the pandemic perhaps have taught us is perhaps a different pace of life to just slow down from our horrid, hurried, consumeristic, materialistic pursuit. And I think a third one, which most of the time people don't know about, is that Sabbath was actually applied to the land. So there is God, there is humanity, there is land. And I think that the land aspect is one we find in Leviticus 25, which is connected to the Jubilee principle that you know, God told the children of Israel, walk, you know, walk the farm, you know, sort of build your agricultural system for six years and then in the seventh, let the land rest. That is quite profound when we begin to unpack the implications of that, that way before we even start talking about the climate crisis, that there is a God that says, because of course, this is this creation, he cares about it and is able to tell us that 
let the land rest. Just let it lay. Let it have a Sabbath rest. And so I think that is very important. And Paul picks this theme up in the New Testament. When we look at Romans chapter 8, where it talks about the manifestations of the sons of God, he speaks about redemption or salvation in twofold. In dual language, he talks about the redemption of humanity, but also the redemption of the cosmos. And I think when we begin to look at that, again, John pushes that further, the recreation of the heavens and the earth. So I think scripture is actually loaded in terms of how we can begin to combat the climate crisis that we face. And I think this is why for us as Christians, understanding that theology of creation and how that runs through the various biblical texts is very key for today. Yeah, I want to totally echo that. And just, I think it's a huge missional area for us, a bridge building area. We should be passionate about creation. We should be passionate about the environment. I love those texts about letting the land lie. We talk about fallow land sometimes, about fields left. But there's a huge trust element there too, because not only you didn't plant anything, and then you had to trust in God that crops would have grown naturally during that year. That was for people, but also for the animals, as you said, you let your fields lie open, let the animals in. And I think it's so easy to kind of skip past those uh, verses and those texts. So thank you for reminding us. How does this land, I mean, the question is, how does this land personally for you, what does it look like? What are the steps you're taking? And I said, I'm going to push you a little because I know you're a man who loves his cars. Like, what does this look like? And I'm a man who has to fly to work sometimes. We all have to own some personal responsibility. There's some tough choices. What is What are the changes in behavior that, that uh, have come about in your life as you've really leaned into this space, Israel? I think one is at the moment we've had to move outside London, of course, because of, you know, work and other kind of stuff. But actually, part of this strategic move of moving outside London and moving into a more greener space is one, because of the air quality. The air quality in London is becoming very toxic, especially Southeast London, where I was living before. And so moving out has been a strategic decision in that sense. And one might say, oh, we're moving out of London. Is that sacrificial? Yes, in some sense, depending on where you come from. (laughs) And moving to a place where you become a minority from being a majority, it's very sacrificial in my context. And I suppose the other things I'm beginning to do more is because of the space we are now in, which is more green, allows for more cycling, allows for more walking. And also, this might sound a bit trivial, but some of the other lifestyle, which touches on African spirituality, is living a fasted life. What that looks like in practice is a slower pace of life and recognizing the fact that, you know, again, coming from that thought of, you know, that African worldview or Yoruba thinking or Nigerian thinking around holistic thinking, but also in terms of a communal living, understanding that whatever we do has repercussions on this uh, earth. And so trying to play my part of not consuming too much in terms of food. Of course, I love my food. You guys know me, I love my food. So I don't mess about with it. But I'm also conscious of the fact that there are parts of the world where people just don't have that. People go through their beans people go to other people's beans to get food. So again, that's something that it's very important. So taking a different pace of life, but consuming less uh, and sort of, you know, think because of the other and because of other people and because of our community, community of people in the sense that we all have a part to play. I'm just trying to play my own part in that sense.
And actually that pushes into the second area that we wanted to spend a little bit of time exploring with you, which is your interest and your advocacy around mental health and supporting both individuals and communities on the agenda about being well and being healthy and this picture of Shalom, the, the world as it should be. And Actually, it's something that you've talked about. You've talked about the support gap and mental health taboos in certain cultures, especially in, in, within Christian churches. How has the church, how has certain theologies, how have certain traditions limited people's access and willingness to engage on the mental health side of our well-being and our flourishing as human beings, do you think? So I believe God can heal. But there are times that healing takes a different process. There are times that healing, you know, is instantaneous. It can happen quick. But there are times it's gradual. It requires process. It requires going on a journey. It requires relationship. And I think maybe that's why when we even look at scripture, there are times when Jesus' healing have a spiritual dimension to it, but as well as a social dimension, especially, you know, when he heals people that, as it were, were ostracized from society. Healing them means that they can be integrated back into community. If we transpose that into our context today, I think mental health issues that comes in various shapes and forms, whether it's depression, anxiety, loneliness. And I think as much as the Pentecostal in me we want people to be healed of, of those things immediately. There are times I'm aware that it doesn't happen in that sense. So there is the need for us as a church to develop a kind of a theology that, yes, there is the miraculous, there is the supernatural element to healing, but there are also times that that requires process, that requires relationship, that requires conversation, that requires a bigger framework, that requires referrals, that requires working with the NHS, that requires a healthy lifestyle, that requires well-being. So there are several aspects to it. And I think we need that in our theology today. When Job lost his family, what I like about that story, even though it's sad because he lost his entire family, but his friends sat with him for almost seven days, not saying anything. That is quite powerful. And I think that was very good for Job's mental health to just, first of all, have his friends just sitting down with him. Perhaps they were just crying together or just just a presence of another human being making a difference. And, and I think it's just kind of understanding that I think we need today if we're going to begin to combat some mental health issues in our theology. And I suppose that that understanding and that conversation and that presence is so crucial, isn't it, to, to not only surviving your own mental health challenges, but supporting those who are who are struggling. And I, I think we we see that at a personal level, but we also see some of the struggles at a cultural and societal level. We know that there are disparities in the mental health treatment and support that individuals are offered, and it seems that culture, class and colour all play a part in those disparities. How do you see power and positioning affecting how people receive support and treatment for mental health? I think it's very crucial because we, you know, we are speaking right to the heart of the, the discourse around 
mental health and in some cases you could say racial justice but of course that's not the only category you can talk about you can talk about women and mental health class and mental health and the list goes on but just to come back to racial justice and mental health i think there is a conversation that society is having that i think the church is even far behind if i may be so bold in the sense that there are conversations that people of color are having, you know, in, you know, in terms of society around mental health, that the church is actually only beginning to pick up. And the reason is because people are having conversations around their mental health in spaces that they want it to be safe. Let's just be honest, you know, safe spaces where they can articulate what their concerns is, or maybe how something was diagnosed or not diagnosed, what was said or was not, what wasn't said. I mean, to give a very <laughs> blunt example, just to help people understand what I'm talking about. There was a time I was chatting with a medical doctor and some of the stuff he said was really, really appalling to the effect that they said, oh, you know, Af it was just like a casual comment that, oh, you know, African Caribbean, you know, they always complain about this hurts me, that hurts me, this and that. And you kind of think, okay, I can see why we have this problem in the sense that, because if you have an attitude like that, you think, okay, well, certain kind of people, they complain all the time, but you can't really diagnose what the problem is. Then what that simply tells me is that then it means people will find spaces where they can talk about these things and not necessarily maybe want to go to the main system or the main institution. So, and I think when we bring that to the church, again, I've been in conversations where people think it's difficult to have these conversations in our churches because they feel there's a lack of understanding around it. So I think we have some issues that needs to be addressed, but I think the church is positioned to be able to have what I'm calling intercultural safe spaces to be able to have some of this conversation. But I think for that to happen, we need to go on a journey, one, to understand mental health and how that relates to racial justice, and then begin to work from there and creating safe spaces to have some of this conversation. So Ezra, you've, I mean, I wanna keep pursuing that a little bit because you mentioned racial justice a couple of times, and I know that's part of your brief within Evangelical Alliance, but I guess, what do you mean by that phrase? Because it's a phrase some might be familiar with, but others might have different understandings of what, what even that phrase means. So I used to term racial justice in the sense of strategic thinking and action to combat or to tackle institutional, cultural, and personal racism that dehumanizes people of color who are created in God's image. So I use it in that sense. So it's it, it sort of, there is the institutional level, but there is also the cultural, but then there is the personal. But whatever forms it is, it is challenging it because it dehumanizes people who are created in God's image. Again, speaking to the idea of being human, because we are all created in God's image. And if racism dehumanizes, then I think we need efforts to help us tackle uh, some of the injustices so that people can feel human and feel part of society. So, and I think my, my part of my brief as the director of One People Commission, as you rightly noted, Peter, was to begin to advocate and speak in terms of racial justice. What I'm actually referring to precisely more as intercultural justice, because again, the idea of racial justice sometimes lends itself to a kind of a black and white type racism, which is the overt one or the one that historically people know, but 
Chinese people, South Korean people, Latin American, South Asian, experience some form of discrimination. And in fact, I think during the pandemic, a lot of people that people were categorized as Chinese, even though some might be Vietnamese, some might be Malaysian. There was a rise in anti, you know, in Asian racism during the pandemic. And, and, and again, that's something that we haven't really been speaking into. So hence the word intercultural, intercultural justice to begin to address various forms within different communities, not just only black and white. And you've you've, um, obviously mentioned there in passing the pandemic as well. And obviously this is the context that we're sitting in. And during that time, we've had these very significant events around George Floyd uh, and then some of the conversations that have followed on from that. And we have, we're obviously based in the UK, um, but we have this challenge of the influence of the US and sometimes positive and sometimes negative. Some of the conversations seem to have shifted critical race theory and some of these ideas coming up. And you and I have had conversations around that. I mean, that's probably a thing that would divide our listeners between those who know what it means and those who don't, and those who've had an interest and it's all that they talk about. Some are like, what is that even about? I guess part of the question is like, how helpful are some of these US conversations? How much are they helping move the conversation forward? And what way do we uniquely engage them in a UK context? I think it's important to understand that the context in the United States is very different from the British scene. Because I think in the United States, the context was, first of all, uh, conquest. You know, we talk about the Native Americans, the indigenous people. And then, of course, there is the enslavement of African-Americans, and which leads to segregation and racial discrimination, which continues today. So the context is different. In the European British context, it is more about and Europe's involvement in the transatlantic slave trade and later the colonization of Africa and Asia and other parts of the world. So the context is different, but I suppose here here is where we need to begin to (laughs) untie some of the knots. So because of some of that challenge and the difference, so critical race theory, of course, emerged because of that context that I've just painted. Uh, it, It emerged in a vacuum where it was almost as if there was no social theory that has the interest of colored people at heart. And critical race theory was trying to speak into that space to say, actually, we are human. So we need justice. We need legal justice. I'm not saying everything about critical race theory is fantastic, but I'm just saying that there is a context in which it exists. But I think what we need to do in the UK, here, here is my summation. Yes, the US is different from the UK. But one thing that U.S. have managed to do that I think we haven't done well in the U.K. is this. U.K. U.S. is having that conversation, despite the fact that they're not getting it right. That conversation is out there. They are having it and they are talking about it. So you can talk about race. You can talk about identity. In the U.K., there is something about British sensibilities that doesn't want to talk about race. And I think that's something we have to really work out. Why? Is it because it's a subject that we see as a taboo? Is it because it's uncomfortable? There is something about British sensibility that just finds that topic a bit tricky. But I think we need to have that conversation because if we don't, I think what will happen is this event or whatever triggers it will come around 
every now and then. If it's not the Windrush scandal, it will be Asian racism, or there will be something else that will bring the conversation. It will be the football thing. So I think we need to find ways to have that conversation, despite the fact that our context is different. And I think that's something we have to do. I love that question around why are we silent and 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 linking it to the British culture, because I think it's so true. A, if we can avoid an awkward conversation, as Brits will. But I do, I wonder where that silence comes from. And I also wonder how do we have conversation without tipping into some of the super toxic, divisive, polemic shouting matches that this conversation can become. You talked earlier about safe spaces, but often safe spaces are places where you can be heard because everybody in that space agrees with you already. And I wonder what reconciliation between different perspectives, different experiences, different cultures can look like. Have you seen anyone or anywhere starting to have those sort of conversations? Are are there any models out there that we should look to So this is where I am hoping that the work of One People Commission could take a lead on this very boldly, because I think we need to model something around our intercultural safe spaces where we can have this conversation. To use the wisdom from Bishop Tedroy Powell, who is the current National Overseer of the Church of God of Prophecy, in a conversation we had, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying this, he said he thinks that where the church is now, church needs to be like Paul, kind of advocating and mediating between Philemon and Onesimus, you know, that text, you know, that just one chapter of the letter to Philemon written by Paul, addressing slavery, uh, a domestic slave that ran away. Uh, we, We need church today, our churches today, to be able to be like Paul, to mediate, to advocate, to bring about reconciliation. How can we talk together around it so that we are not shouting or we, you know, or shouting over each other or whose voice is loudest. And I think we need to go on a restorative justice path. And I think this is where the idea of justice in scripture is quite powerful. I've been studying the words for justice in scripture. In the Old Testament, there are three words. There is hesed, which is mercy. There is zedek, which is righteousness. And there is mishpat, which is justice. And when you look at that, they're kind of holistic again. Uh, And so it's no surprise that Micah will talk about, you know, what does the Lord require of you to act justly? act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. We need those three together. We need to act justly. We need to love mercy, and we need to walk humbly. This road requires humility. Uh, and I think character is very key. In, in the New Testament, the three words that describes justice, again, is that idea of righteousness in the Greek, which is dikaosune. Uh, and then there is forgiveness, which is at the heart of the cross itself which again brings reconciliation. So I think that is the path for restorative justice. And that is the path for conversation that I think it's important for us to have today. I am hoping the OPC can be positioned to take a lead on this conversation. But where I'm seeing some of this happening at the moment, I've seen some conversations happening that are safe spaces, but not loads, not loads. Perhaps one or two, I've seen some taking place within the context of churches together in England, you know, and CTBI, 
but not loads. We, we, we need more of these safe spaces so that we can have this conversation because it's very important and we can have restorative justice. So I know we were chatting beforehand and I asked what you said was a slightly controversial question and in, in comment, uh, you know, as a unity movement, are we moving towards a place where you don't need an OPC? But I guess to broaden that, like, how do we get to places where, you know, trying to land as practically again as possible in those safer spaces? Language, I mean, we've changed our language, I think, internally at times. It felt like it was black majority churches, black and ethnic minority, people of colour. I mean, sometimes those of us, even in conversations, aren't sure what's the best language to use, what's appropriate. Is it race? Is it ethnicity? How do we, where, where do people go to look for some of those resources? What are some of the most practical ways we can land as we, we come into the end of our conversation together, Israel? So one of the things I've done with the OPC is sort of put together a kind of a list of recommended resources, which is on the OPC website. People can look at the EA website, which is eauk.org. He's on uh, message, so, well done. And uh, people can have a look at that. And uh, so the recommended resources are there and they are in different sections. If people want to learn about black majority churches, about racial justice, climate justice, about intercultural mission, it, it, it's all right there. I, I think, yes, let's read books. Let's watch some documentaries on iPlayer, which helps us to go on this journey. But I think the most important thing we can do is to build relationships, you know, I think, and I think a key question is to look at who are our friends and who can we intentionally build and develop relationship with. We must always ask the question, all my friends looking like me, do they speak like me? Do they think like me? Are they all from the social background like me? Then if that's the case, if your social media is full of people who look like you, then I think if you want to go on this journey, of having this conversation, then it has to be each and every one of us intentionally moving towards building those relationships so that we can to begin to build what people refer to as cultural intelligence. So I think it's very important uh, to just start there to begin to build that relationship be- beyond our own normal, usual type and just go beyond. And that cuts across for everyone. It's just very important to to begin to do that. And I think the the other thing I believe we need to do is I believe that this also requires prayer. You know, you know, even though it's not often mentioned, but I I am a big advocate that as we continue to have this difficult conversation, it requires spiritual warfare. It requires a lot. So I think I'm putting prayers on the table. And there is something about praying together that breaks down barriers. And so when I see people organizing prayers that bring different people together, I applaud that because I think that is quite strategic again and quite important. So I I would say prayers is very important in that sense. And lastly, I would say we all just need to be humble about this. Uh, you know, we all just need to uh, reflect on our own individual journeys and just understand that. I mean, Paul puts it this way. He said, I know in part, uh, you know, Paul, you know, I know it. Paul puts it this way that he sees, he doesn't see the whole picture. You know, I have a, a bit of the puzzle. The way it talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And so that requires humility. We, we all have different perspectives, but we still need each other. I am because you are. No one is an island. We all need to reflect on that. We all have to learn from each other and find the spaces and the people and the relationships within which we can have the conversations. 
we've obviously been chatting about the Being Human project. We're really excited about it. We want to thank you, Israel, for your contribution to this. That's part of an ongoing conversation because we think race and ethnicity and questions around that are really huge. I think you had some great phrase about the dehumanizing that goes on in this moment in a lot of the conversations that we have. That's absolutely the core of what we're excited about in terms of the project. It's one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the podcast at this stage. And you're going to be a friend to us as we journey the project going forward. And um, thank you so much, Israel. People can find out about you on the EA website, the One People Commission. I know you've done a number of podcasts and other conversations recently, particularly about race and climate change, but a number of other issues, including mental health. So they'll, if they Google and search, they'll find you in a whole series of conversations. Thank you for what you're leading in this moment. It's been great to have this conversation together and bless you and all you're doing to help further the conversation in this space. Thank you. Thank you very much. God bless. So there you go. I do hope you enjoyed today's episode. More information about Israel and his work can be found in today's show notes. For more information about Being Human, do visit the Being Human website at beinghumanproject.co.uk, where you can find out all about what we're up to, previous seasons from the Being Human podcast, articles and resources about what's coming next. And don't forget to subscribe to Being Human wherever you get your podcast. Take care and God bless.